Good morning. You're doing well today? We are continuing on in our sermon series in the book of Hebrews. And one of the most unsettling things I think that you can experience as a person is the feeling of being lost. Now, hopefully in our days of the entire map of humanity in our pocket, you don't get lost quite as often as you maybe did in the past. I don't even know that people still ask for directions anymore. Like, when was the last time you stopped and asked for directions? Some of you are like, I've never asked for directions, and that's a point of pride. <laughs> Nor will I ever ask for directions. But it's not enough just for us to not be lost directionally. We get lost in all sorts of things. I remember in high school, uh, I find myself lost in the subject of calculus. It's the devil. And I remember uh, I, was, I was a good student. I was well on my way to graduating. There was, no, there was no question that I would walk with my class until I met calculus. It was the only math credit I had left to get. And I remember failing my first test. And that threw all sorts of things into question, whether I was going to graduate on time, was I going to be able to pass this, pass this math class, when we're talking to guidance counselors, what can I do? I went and saw tutors, everything, trying to figure out how to handle calculus. And what I've learned is that math is one of those annoying subjects that builds on itself. And so if you don't have good pre-algebra, which I didn't, you don't have good algebra, you don't have good geometry, you don't have good trigonometry, and guess what? You don't have good pre-calculus and calculus. And so by the time I got to calculus, my understanding of math basically resembled Swiss cheese. There was a lot of holes in it. And so I struggled. And I don't know where you are today. I, by the way, did graduate high school, fun fact. And I never took another math class again. <laughs> I don't know where some of you guys are today, but you may feel like you're lost. But you don't know where you're at. And you thought that you were on the right path. You thought that if I follow the steps, the cultural steps that I've been told, or the steps that my family told me to take, that, that everything would kind of build on itself and everything was gonna be okay. And now you look at your life and you think, my life looks a lot like Swiss cheese. There's a lot of holes in it. There's things that I was supposed to have picked up. There were things that I was supposed to have been taught. There were things that I was supposed to have experienced and I haven't done it yet. And it looks like I may not ever get to. And you may be a new believer. You may be somebody who has been in the faith for a long time and you're looking back over your own walk with Christ and you're like, there are holes in it. There are basics of the faith that I never got. And today we're going to talk about how do we find the path that God has for us? How do we get back on the path? How do we stay on the path and avoid getting lost? We're looking at Hebrews chapter 12. And this is a, a chapter that's about discipline. And so we're going to look today at three disciplines that will help us stay on the path. And the first discipline is we need to be simple. We need to be simple. Look at verse 1, chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We've moved out of one of the most famous passages in the scripture, Hebrews chapter 11, which we've referenced numerous times. Don't worry, you haven't missed a sermon. We, we didn't cover it. And it's a passage that is basically, it's called the Hall of Faith. And it's a litany of Old Testament believers who walked through suffering, walked through struggling, struggling, but at the same time kept on to their faith. They held on to it. And they're being described in this passage as a great cloud of witnesses. That cloud of witnesses is like a, a group of spectators in a gym or in, a, in an auditorium or in a stadium. And they're watching you run your race and they're cheering you on. Go! Keep going! We did it! You can do it too! this great cloud of witnesses cheering us on. And we want to do well for them. We want to perform well for the audience. How do we do that? The author tells us it's a two-step process. Take off and focus. The first thing is to take off. Notice what it says in verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's easy to see the analogy here. If you are over-encumbered, it's hard to walk on a path. If you've got too much stuff, you want to lay it aside. And so in our spiritual walk with the Lord, these can generally, generally fall into two categories. One are things that are bad that God has prohibited, but then there's also things that are good that take too large of a place in our life. The bad things are probably easy to identify. Covetousness, greed, pride, selfish ambition, lust. Those are things that we have to throw off of us. And run with the race. Those are bad things that get in the way, but then there are good things that get in the way. They're not bad in and of themselves, but maybe they take a disproportionate place in our life. Maybe, maybe it's a, a hobby that, that you're too invested in. You've got to let it get out of control. Maybe it's a focus on work. Maybe it's material possessions. Maybe it's people-pleasing. For us to follow Jesus, we have to simplify our lives. We have to cut back on those things. Nobody wants to go on a run with like a backpack full of books. You don't need them. I mean, I guess if you're going to read when you get there, but that's a weird practice. For us to follow Jesus, we have to simplify our lives. But the second thing he tells us to do here is we need to focus on Jesus. Jesus is the source, the motivator. Look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's the one who's blazed the path for us. He's the one who's marked out the race. Many of you might know uh, of Lewis and Clark and the Lewis and Clark expedition. Sacagawea, the Native American woman who led them through the wilderness, helped them find their way. Jesus has carved the path for us. He's like the explorer in the old cartoons that's hacking through the jungle. He's hacking through the jungle of sin and death and evil, clearing the path for us to walk. And he did it not in this glorious fashion, but he did it through his shameful death on a cross. But now he's seated at the right hand of God. And I don't know that a more simple man ever lived. He was a simple man. He tells his disciples, I have no place to lay my head. When he went to the cross, he was stripped down, probably naked. So what does this have to do with getting lost, Travis? Well, a lot of it. When you are weighed down by stuff, you are over-encumbered and you cannot 
keep up with our pathfinder, with our pathmaker. You can't keep up with the one who's blazed the trail for you. And we need to know that in our culture, what we think falling behind looks like is different. We think falling behind looks like giving in to depression or, or giving in to some sort of sin or giving in to, to apostasy. And that, that's true. There's some parts of that where, where maybe you struggle and you just decide to lose your faith in the midst of that. That can happen. But one of the more sinister ways to fall by the wayside looks very glamorous. You see, in our society, we equate accomplishment with accumulation. The more I have, the more successful I am. And the more stuff you have, the harder it is to follow Jesus because oftentimes he will ask you to leave things behind. And so we wind up being pilgrims on the pathway and rather than being content to follow our Savior on the journey, we say, Jesus, this looks like a really nice place right here. I think I'm going to build a house here as a place to put all my stuff and I'm going to be happy here. The more you have, the more successful you are. That is not what Scripture teaches. Those things that God has given us, they are meant to be aids, helps along the way, tools to help us. But when they are no longer those things, they are not good for us. And they must be cast aside. When I was preparing for this sermon, I was thinking about how this chapter is largely about discipline. And one of the, the best ways to think through discipline is to think through it as a practice uh, of working hard, training. And so one of the best books on spiritual disciplines is Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. And so I look through his book and he has ready applications. And so he talks about the spiritual discipline of simplicity. We're more familiar with scripture and with prayer, perhaps with meditation. Maybe we've heard of fasting. But simplicity is not one we use very often. But he talks about this. He says simplicity is more than just becoming ascetic and taking aside all of our stuff and leaving it alone. It is focusing on Jesus. He says to, to have the practice of simplicity, you must first do what Jesus talks about in Matthew 6.33. Seek first what? The kingdom. And then he says, and all these other things will be added to you. And in our kind of warped, kind of materialistic minds, we think, oh, that means then I'll get all the other stuff. No. It means that all those other things that we so desire will be put in their proper place. You'll see whether or not you need them, oftentimes whether or not you even want them anymore. So how do we do this? Well, first and foremost, obviously we seek first the kingdom. Do you seek the Lord in your personal time? What do you do with the free time you have? Many of us probably have limited free time. What do I do with that time? Do you ask him in those times how to leverage what you have? God, I have this gift, I have this ability, I have this thing, I have this house, I have this car. How do you want me to use it? We all instinctively think we know how to use the things God gave us. And God's like, that's not what I intended you to have that for. How do I use this? Foster also has some ideas about how to strip things aside. One, we can buy things for their usefulness rather than for their status. You need a watch? Rather than buying the nicest watch you can have, maybe just get something that has a band that stays on your arm and keeps decent enough time. How about giving things away? Downsizing your house, downsizing your car. Does it need to be a museum to your accomplishment? 
Get rid of the things that produce addiction in you. Set those aside. Wind up simplifying our life in those things. Enjoying things without ownership. This has been a struggle for me because Travis likes to buy books. And not just because I like to read, I like to show off. But I have a lot of books. In fact, if you've ever been to my house, you walk in and the first thing you're greeted by are a large collection of books. Most of them are my wife's. They're not mine at all. They're mine. And so what I've had to do is I've discovered, we've discovered this magical place. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called the library. They have books you can just take and it's free. And then you just bring them back. It's crazy. Enjoy things without ownership. Get out there and enjoy creation. Maybe wait till it's not triple digits or bring some water. Wait till October to go out and enjoy creation. But it's there. You can enjoy it. Lastly, be simple in your speech. Be simple in your speech. You don't have to butter people up. I'm a verbal processor. I make my living talking. This is convicting for me too. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Don't drag things out. Some of you are like, Travis, does that mean we're getting a shorter sermon today? No, it doesn't. But it's not enough to be simple. It's not enough to know that what I have on the journey is going to be enough. I have to be sure of the path that I'm on. I need to be sure. So let's read from verses 3 to 11. It's a longer passage, so hang with me. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. One of the more unsettling things about being a follower of Jesus is the concept of suffering. Now there's the the macro question of the problem of evil, right? Why does God let any bad things happen? If he's a good God and he's a loving God, why does he let bad things happen? If he's a powerful God, how can he let this stuff happen? But perhaps another question that we don't answer or ask as much is why does God let bad things happen to people who love him? Who trust him? Why is it that he seems like his most faithful saints are the ones that go through the hardest challenges? Lord, I know I'm not perfect, but I, I, I've, I've followed you. I've trusted you. I've given. I've sacrificed. And now I'm walking through a season where I'm sick. Or I'm in pain, constant pain. My spouse is gone. I never had children. I'm alone. I lost my job. 
Hebrews 12 gives us an answer that I find to be satisfying. He says that there's a correlation between suffering and sonship. Between suffering and sonship. And he starts exactly where he should start. He starts with Jesus in, chapter, in verse 3. He says, Consider him who endured hot sinner, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. Think about Christ. He was perfect. He was sinless. And he endured the greatest suffering of all. And the author writes this as a way to talk to the Hebrew Christians. Remember, they're being pressured to give up their faith and return to Judaism, which was a sanctioned religion in the Roman Empire. They could avoid a lot of trouble, a lot of suffering if they left the path and chose an easier way to go. And the writer tells them in verse 4, hey, you haven't suffered to the point of shedding your blood. So it seems like they're under a lot of pressure, but they haven't actually been physically assaulted for their faith. And into this, the author quotes in that sort of middle paragraph there, verses 5 and 6, Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. And he says, the suffering, the struggling that you're going through is God disciplining you. He's confirming your place as a child because of a good father disciplines his children. Good father disciplines their children. Good father doesn't let their kids run wild. Good father doesn't allow their kids to be spoiled and do whatever they want. It's damaging to them and it's damaging to their character. A good father can't let stuff like that just go on. So Travis, are you telling me that the bad things that happen in my life, the suffering I'm going through, the things like cancer or, or loneliness or depression or losing my job, that's because I messed up and God's giving me a cosmic timeout, a cosmic spanking because I did something wrong. Is that what you're saying? Before I answer that, I would offer to you something I've experienced in my own life as a father. When we give our kids a consequence or a punishment for something that they've done that violates our family values or violates uh, the way we want to honor Christ or each other in our home, we offer them a punishment. I say we offer. That makes it sound like they can take it or leave it. We give them a consequence. We give them a punishment, right? It's timeout or grounding or whatever it might be. And when we're done, when it's over, we'll look them in the eye and we'll say, why did you have this happen? Why did you have this consequence? And they'll say, well, I, I, I hit my sister. Or I was disobedient. Or I was disrespectful. Or I hit my sister. Or I hit my sister. <laughs> a good father is a good disciplinarian. And a good disciplinarian doesn't punish you without making it crystal clear what behavior he wants you to stop. It's not fair. And it's bad parenting to just punish people without telling them, this is what I want you to do. You figure it out. You figure it out. It's like when the IRS says you owe us money. Okay, how much do we owe you? I don't know. Here's a form. You guess. And we'll tell you if you're wrong. You're like, I don't know. The IRS is not a good parent. But our God is, our Father is a good parent. He's a good disciplinarian. You cannot look at your private suffering and try and piece together, what did I do wrong, God, to make you treat me this way? It's irresponsible spiritually in the same way it's spiritually irresponsible for us to look at a hurricane hitting a city and say, oh, well, that's God's judgment on that city. You don't know that. You don't know that. That is irresponsible spiritual practice and it's the same in your own life you are ascribing things to God that he may not intend 
Now, is corrective discipline a part of God's discipline? I think so. I don't like to call it punishment. I think Christ took all the punishment on the cross. And when we trust in him, there's no more wrath. There's no longer any condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But I do think there's discipline. But discipline, just as punishment, is far too narrow. I want you to think of discipline more as training. It's training. When you work, when you, when you decide to run a marathon, or when you decide to develop a new skill or a new profession, a new career, maybe you're, you're going to become a doctor or a surgeon, you train. You train and you train and you train and you train. And you sacrifice to do that. You lose things to do that. I don't know of any doctors that haven't had to give up so many things in order to be a good doctor. And frankly, if your doctor didn't have to sacrifice, you don't want to go to that doctor anymore. It requires sacrifice. If you've ever had a a personal trainer, you've had a coach or a teacher, they will correct you. They'll say your form is not good. You're not doing that well. If you've had a, a technical, hey, you can't, uh, you can't cut into a, a patient like that. You've got to do it like this. That's a mistake. That's correction. That's a part of training. Discipline is training. And we are training to do something very specific. And you see it in verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. We are being trained to take over the family business of being set apart for a higher calling. That's what God's doing in all life. He's training us. You see, in the ancient world, they would take their sons, those that were going to inherit the estate, and they would teach them. They would build their character. They would build their their understanding. They would build their skill set. And if you weren't a son, if you weren't a legitimate son, or if you were a slave, they wouldn't bother training you. There was no point. And so when you experience God's discipline, it's God saying, I see something in you, and I'm going to refine it because I love you. And in in my grace, I'm going to make you into everything that I've designed you to be. And sometimes the corrective process comes in. I think that looks a lot like consequences. Oftentimes our consequences for our actions. But the goal is to yield righteousness, as it says in verse 11. And I think this is what makes us, this passage, so encouraging. You are being trained to trust the Lord. You are being trained personally by God. God is your personal trainer in holiness and in righteousness. You are being trained to flex your muscles of faith in the midst of suffering. You're being asked by God to do exactly what God, but what Christ did on the cross. Endure by trusting him. And that's how you know you're choosing the better path. That's how you know you're walking the better path. Good paths are well marked. And oftentimes they have signs. Our pathway doesn't have a sign saying, this is the way. Go walk this way. No, our pathway is clearly marked by all of the believers who have come before us treading the same ground of faith and suffering, faith and struggle, faith and challenge, trusting God as he leads us. And that pathway was blazed by Jesus Christ himself on the cross. It was clearly marked out by him. But there have been other believers who have walked on that path too. People like Joseph, who was enslaved, and Job, who lost his whole world. Ruth, who lost her husband. Daniel, who lost his home. Stephen, lost his life. And then there are people outside of the Bible, a young woman named Perpetua in the early church, who refused, even though her father pleaded with her to give up her faith, she refused to do it. And she was torn apart by animals in a coliseum. There's Jan Hus, who was about 100 years too early for the Reformation, and he died by burning burning to the stake and it continues on and even today we have people in our own church 
who have tread the ground of suffering and faith. And one of them is a young woman named MC Peterson, and you're going to hear from her right now on this video. in the hospital I felt like my whole world just been shattered and I wasn't angry at God but I just it, like you never think that your mom's gonna have cancer until she has cancer so my name is MC Peterson I'm 16 and I'm gonna be a junior at Trinity Christian High School I have been at PCBC since I was born grew up in the preschool ministry um, and my parents have been there, I think, for about like 20 years now. I was baptized when I was seven, and it was very early in life for me, but I think I really understood it, and I just had very, like, God-loving parents. And around that time, when I was in about first or second grade, my dad lost his job. That just totally reminded me that, like, oh yeah, like, this is not my control. It's completely God's control. And so there's not a whole lot I can do here other than pray. And I'm literally in like third grade. Um, and so then a few months later, he found a great job. Um, he does tech sales, so that's always a hard job to be in, but um, he found it. And so that just reminded me like, hey, like God, you're absolutely in control on this. And it may feel like you have left me, but like in truth, you've never left me and you're not going to leave me. So last year, last March, my mom got diagnosed with lymphoma. Before that, I was reading my Bible every day. I was praying, I was reflecting um, on what God has done for me. And in that moment, I was like, God, like I need you. I distinctly remember crying on the bathroom floor when my mom said, hey, I need you to cut my hair. <laughs> Sorry. I've never experienced something so hard in my life because um, it's just hair and it's silly, but I felt like I was taking something from her, but um, my mom is such a beautiful woman and I felt like cancer was taking everything from us. Um, and so seeing like crying on the bathroom floor with the scissors in my hand, like, trying to make that first cut was so hard for me um, and eventually we did it and we sobbed forever um, and I at the time had really really long hair that came down like past my waist and um, around that Mother's Day my mom was in the hospital I decided that I wanted to donate to her um, and so I cut off like 14 to 15 inches of my hair rocked a cute bob for the summer. My parents connect group funded my hair be made into a wig for her. Um, and so just seeing them come around my family to do something like a little fun project for my mom was just so cool. And to see again, like how they surrounded us during that time. And the chemo like really took a lot of out of her. Um, and but like seeing her face and how excited she got, like I think she cried when she opened the box. There were so many people bringing us meals. There were so many people praying for us and supporting us. And I can say like, God is so good because of how he has restored my mom. Like she's completely better now. Um, and my mom's such like a stubborn go, go, go person. And now she's like completely better. And she's like, all right, let's go. And so she just got right back to it. 
church is not four walls. It truly is God's people. Um, and seeing like, again, like how church provides meals and how they funded my mom's wig and everything. Like God's people are his people. They will come around you and they will love you and protect you. And it shows me like what a true church family looks like. Ever since, you know, growing up in preschool with Mr. Marty to now being with Morgan, it's just really cool to see how people will surround other people during hard times. And, and like you might feel alone with whatever you might be going through, but like people are there and they're very willing to reach out and help you. But literally the biggest thing you have to do is just ask sometimes. May God give us the faith of a young woman like that. What uh, was not shown on the video is that a couple days after filming uh, that video, her younger brother Pike was diagnosed with leukemia. And so he's receiving treatment now and is doing well, but you can continue to pray for the Petersons because their pathway of uh, training is continuing on and we can come alongside them and love them well. So how do we deal with God's discipline? I think MC just told us exactly how you do it. You submit to it. You submit to it. Look what it says in verse 9. It says in verse 9, Besides this, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject or submissive to the Father of spirits and live? We submitted to our earthly fathers. We should also submit to God. Richard Foster talks about this. He said one of the best ways to understand submission to God is to submit yourself to other people. Submit yourself to others. What does this look like? Well, sometimes it can look like not saying anything. We live in a very vocal society. Everybody's opinion is important, right? Um, and, and that's fine. But sometimes there is righteousness in choosing not to say something and saying, I'm just going to let this moment go. I'm going to let this pass. You can start putting another person's goals before your own. Somebody's weekend agenda before your own. Maybe it's your spouse's weekend agenda. Maybe they get to have first dibs on what you guys do. And some of you might be saying, well, my spouse always has first dibs. Well, then maybe they need to hear this. Listen to your parents if you are still in your parents' household. And listen to your parents without arguing. It's challenging. Maybe it's so much as saying, you know what? I don't like the decision that you have made, but because of my love for you and my love for the Lord, I am going to respect it. Lastly, of course, is self-denial. Choosing to deny the self. We often find ourselves happily submitting to the desires of ourself, not realizing that that runs counter often to submitting to God. So choosing to reject our understanding of comfort sometimes and submitting to God. So it's not just enough to strip down and to follow the path. It's not enough to uh, stay on the path. We also need to stay sharp. We need to stay sharp. This passage concludes with several warnings about the things that can drag us off the path, take us away from what Christ has for us. And one of the things is 
exhaustion. Look at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. It's hard work following Jesus. It's exhausting. Not for his love and for his affection, no. But it's hard work keeping up with him. And you can become tired, especially when you're suffering. You can wake up one morning and say, I am absolutely going to follow Jesus in the midst of this suffering. There's nothing that can deter me. And then the next day you wake up and you're like, I absolutely just want to give up. So how do we strengthen ourselves? We have to find our hope in the eternal promise of Jesus Christ. Because often what we do is we, we hope in getting through the season. If I can just get through this trial, or if I can just get through this illness, or if I can just get through this season at work, if I can just get through this rebellious period in my kid's life, or if I can just get through, get through, get through, it winds up making a series of battles that seem unconnected. But when we put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ and the promise of a new heaven and a new earth that he gives us, then it doesn't look like a series of battles. It looks like one long journey, one long path. And he's helping us navigate the difficulties. Find hope in him. Conflict can also derail us. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Oftentimes conflict with other people on the path that we walk can wind up, well, making us want to find a different path, not quite so close to those people. We have the benefit of not walking this path alone, just like MC was talking about. But sometimes there are people that walk the path with us that hurt us, and we become bitter and frustrated. One of the worst roots of bitterness that can crop up is a root of bitterness between you and the Lord. He's the one allowing the suffering to happen. Why should I support? Why should I love him? Why should I care for him? Why should I do this for him? He can stop this, and he chooses not to. We must be careful of that. Another thing that can drive us from the path is our self-serving nature. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau is described as this negative example because he was so hungry, he was so famished. And as the firstborn, he had this birthright, and his younger brother Jacob had made this uh, soup, this stew. And Esau comes back from the fields of hunting, and he's like, give me some of that stew, I'm hungry, I'm dying. And Jacob says, well, I want your birthright. And he's like, what good is a birthright going to do me if I starve to death right now, which is the most drama queen thing I've ever seen in the Bible. But he sells his birthright. And many of us, we look at our relationship with the Lord and we say, what good is heaven? What good is eternity? What good is this long-term holiness that God is going to promise me if I'm uncomfortable now, if I'm not happy now, if I'm not satisfied now? So we sacrifice for the short-term gains. But guys, what happens if we have left the path? What happens if we are exhausted? If we're in conflict with so many people, what happens if we've been serving our own selfish desires for so long that we don't know what it looks like to follow Jesus anymore? What then? Is that the end of the story? Well, it's not because it's not the end of the story of Esau either. In Genesis 33, Jacob and Esau reconcile. And what happens is Jacob comes back. He had left because Esau threatened to kill him. And so Jacob left for about 14 years plus, and he's on his way back, and he decides he's going to try and placate Esau. 
And so he takes his herds, he takes all the things that he's accumulated, and he starts sending groups of flocks that meet Esau along the way. And so as they're coming to meet, Esau runs into gift after gift after gift. And the word for gift is the same word as sacrifice. Jacob is essentially sacrificing these animals to a, like he would appease a god. And finally he comes upon Esau. And he falls at his feet. And Esau scoops him up and starts weeping with him and, and says, I love you and I'm sorry. And let's, let's, let's reconnect. Let's, let's reconcile. And he says, what's the meaning of all these gifts? We don't need these gifts. And Jacob says in 33 verse 10, he says, no, please. If I've found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. You see, oftentimes when we leave the path, we try to do what Jacob has done. We try to put through our own efforts, our own sacrifices, our own uh, ways of trying to get back to God. We're trying to blaze a new path to God. I don't want to go this way. I'm going to go this way. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be generous. And that'll blaze a pathway to God. And God's going to be there at the end of the path waiting to receive me again. But here's the problem. You don't have enough good gifts. Your machete is not sharp enough to cut through all of the sin and death and evil in our lives that gets us to God. It's not sharp enough. You're not going to make it. You're going to die in the wilderness. But there is one who's sharp enough, who stayed sharp his whole life, and who's a newer and better Jacob. He had no conflict with God the Father, but instead he offers himself as a sacrifice. He is both the one who, the Father is the one who sends him, but he sends himself as well. And he is the sacrifice offered at the foot of God, even though we were the ones who were estranged from the Father. And Jesus offers himself so that we can be scooped up by God. And he says, what's the meaning of all this gift? What's the meaning of all this attempt to come back to me? All you needed to do was trust in Christ. All you need to do is put your faith in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I don't need all this, these gifts. I love you. Let us be together. And how did Jesus do this? You see it in verse 12. Jesus was the one who had his drooping hands lifted. They were nailed to a cross. Jesus' weak knees were nearly broken, but he had already died. His path was not straight. It was winding on the road to Golgotha. And he was the one that has been put out of joint. Why? At the end of verse 13, so that we can be healed. This sermon is called a better path, and that's a misnomer because there's not a better path. There's only one path, and it is to follow Jesus Christ and to give him your life. That's the way onto the path. That's the way we stay on the path. I said to stay sharp to the dangers, and yes, we should, but really you should stay sharp to the Savior. What's he doing? Where's he going? How's he moving in my life? I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on him. That's what it tells us in the beginning of the chapter. Stay focused on Christ. Follow him. And all these other things will be added to you. And so today, we find ourselves with a path to walk. And to do it, yes, we need to be simple. We need to strip down to be able to do that. And yes, we need to be sure of the path we're walking. But if you want to do any of that, you've got to stay sharp to Jesus. Because when you do that, guess what happens? When you put your faith and trust in Him, he will tell you you need to leave that behind. 
hey, I know this is hard. I'm going to lead you through it. He will be with you, and he will lead you and guide you. But you cannot tread this path alone, and you cannot go this path without a guide, our Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the great gift that you have given us, yourself. We who would meander and wander in the desert as the Israelites did, we have a better hope, we have a better path, one that leads us straight through the wilderness to your heavenly throne. And we can pray and we can offer up prayer and we can beseech you. And I pray, Lord God, that today you would let us do that as we spend our time closed in worship. It's in your son's name.